am so happy to be here with all of you as you cuddle up, maybe get a uh, cup of coffee, hot chocolate, sit down, relax, and enjoy a half an hour of really fine medical information. As you know, Dr. Holm is usually in the studio with me. He has taken a break, and he has about three weeks to just relax. I'm so happy for him. He's doing really well. For the regular listeners, we know that he's been dealing with cancer, but this is something to cheer him up. He is very happy with what he's doing now. And I'm happy in his absence to be able to welcome Jill Cruz to our program. Jill is a family medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, this is a pleasure for me, and I know you've been on here before, and probably just a year ago you did the program with me when Dr. Holm was gone another time. So you keep showing up in January, and I'm glad to have you here. Uh, can't do the show without a doctor, so we're happy to have a doctor in the house. If you have any questions, if you're listening and you have any questions of Dr. Cruz, give us a call at 692-1430, and we'd be glad to answer any questions you might have. Dr. Cruz and I talked a little bit before the program, and she said a good topic to bring up is SAD, seasonal affective disorder. With the cold, cold weather, that is a good topic. Yes, definitely. Uh, it's something that's very common, especially in this area of the country, uh, being how far north we are from the equator. Uh, seasonal affective disorder is actually a type of depression that happens usually in one half of the year, so just one season. So usually it's winter, especially for our areas where it's cold outside, you have a hard time getting out, um, it's kind of gray and dark, and we have the shorter days. So with that decrease in sunlight, uh, that can definitely mess with your natural circadian rhythms. People get tired, they don't have as much energy, start craving carbohydrates. Um, all of those are symptoms of seasonal affective disorder. And uh, when you throw in Christmas and Thanksgiving and all these holidays with all this good food, add in weight gain, another symptom of seasonal affective disorder. So something that's very common, but also very treatable. And how do you treat it? Well, there's uh, very different ways that uh, can be treated and sometimes people need a combination, but the most common is actually using light therapy. So for seasonal affective disorder, you can get uh, what are called uh, light boxes or sad lights. And that sort of mimics the natural sunlight that you would get in kind of early mid-morning. So about uh, 10,000 lux of light is how it's measured. And a usual indoor light in your house is only about 250 lux. So it's not bright enough to stimulate uh, those photoreceptors in uh, the eyes and the brain to tell you, hey, it's oh, time to be awake and time to be active. On a bright, sunny day in the Caribbean, you're going to hit like 100,000 lux. So, oh, my goodness. That's quite a bit more. So it's a bit different uh, from if you're just inside in an office or in your home. You're just not getting enough light to stimulate your body to wake up and be active. So you kind of want to go into hibernation. So those light therapies, which work best if you use them in the first couple hours of the morning, uh, will really help kind of wake you up and get you motivated to do things. And you really don't have to just sit there and be bored for a half hour. You can you know, read your morning paper, you can work on the computer, you can eat your breakfast. So you don't have to be staring at the light box and doing absolutely nothing. You can just have this light on and be exposed to it. As long as it's in your peripheral vision, 
that's great. You don't want to stare directly at the light. You won't stare directly at the sun. So just have it uh, kind of bathing uh, in its warm, nice glow and pretend you're in the Caribbean with Dr. Holm. <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. Um, is this something you should have a doctor uh, prescribe or is it something you can go to a pharmacy or where would you get the light box? Actually, you can do both. Uh, okay. Walgreens sells them. Uh, there's lots of places online that you can buy them, but you can get a prescription for them and get them at a home medical supply store. Uh, so if you get a prescription for your doctor, there's a good chance that insurance can chip in on the cost because well, they're be not cheap. Oh, okay. But they, they really have been effective for they, a lot of people. Huh? Yes. If, uh, for mild to moderate seasonal affective disorder, that's a really great way. You know, there's really no side effects. Uh, if you use it too late in the day, it may make you a little awake and have a hard time getting to sleep. But other than that, uh, really no problems with it. If that doesn't work, then you can add it in combination with an antidepressant uh, like an SSRI, like Prozac, um, Paxil. Any of those will help, and usually the people start taking those about two to four weeks before the depression really seems to hit, and will take it through uh, the winter and then stop it sometime in the spring when usually their mood would naturally lift. Um, so seasonal affective is something that does happen pretty predictably year after year. So if you've had at least two years in a row where you just feel terrible in the winter and spring comes and things get better, it's a pretty good chance that you have a uh, case of seasonal affective disease and it definitely um, does have varying spectrums from just being mildly cranky and grumpy to actually interfering with your daily life and your ability to get things done. Well, it's good to know. I'm sure there's a lot of people that suffer from it every year and just figure, ah, I'm a South Dakota and I can live with it. But basically, you don't have to be miserable the whole January and February. You can really start to feel better. Exactly. Good. Well, thank you, Dr. Cruz. We're due to take our first break. Again, if you have any questions, give us a call at 692-1430. We'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Happy to have you listening today. I'm Joan Hogan, and Dr. Holm is sailing, sailing the Caribbean, I think the Virgin Islands. I don't know if it's the American or the British, but he's down there somewhere, happy as a lark. We're so pleased for him. And in his absence, I'm pleased to have Jill Cruz here, and she is a medical doctor, a family, med family medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group, Brookings. Uh, before the break, we were talking about sad, seasonal, effective uh, disease, and we had a question that came in asking about um, depression. Does anxiety always accompany depression? With age, the passing of time, does depression abate? So anxiety and depression are two separate things, and they can occur together. There are many people that have depression and anxiety, but I have seen many patients that have just depression or just anxiety. So the poor, unlucky people that have both together really have a lot to deal with and work with. And when you have both together, it definitely helps to have not only medications to help, but to work with a counselor. Uh, because just one modality by itself generally isn't enough to deal when you have two issues going on. So, you know, working with a counselor to help with coping skills, to help uh, learn how to relax, uh, sometimes reframe some of the things that are causing your anxiety, and finding ways to deal with it outside of depending on just a medication is very helpful. And then sometimes trying to find what is the root cause of this anxiety. Is there something that uh, hasn't been dealt with? Is there some stress that um, you just haven't seen and uh, found a way to 
uh, accept and work around. That's so where a counselor would be helpful? Definitely helpful right. to work with a counselor to find more coping mechanisms and strategies, things you haven't thought of, uh, and ways to deal with uh, anxiety. I know one little tip that I tell my patients is if you're really anxious and worried about something, write it down, date it, and then uh, put it in a box. And every once in a while, open up that box and start reading what your worries were. And you'll find that either one, it never happened, which is the great majority of the time. <laughs> Two, if it did happen, there was absolutely nothing you could do about it anyway. So worrying didn't make any difference. Um, or three, it did happen and you survived and you found a way to deal with it and get through it. So it's really good to kind of have that date and just looking in hindsight, you can gain a little bit of perspective as to, you know, when you're coming up to the situation again, okay, I've gone through this before, I've dealt with it and it will be okay. That's a great idea. I wouldn't have thought of doing that, but why just have it worry on your mind all the time? Put it in a box, date it. And let it go. Let it go. Wow. I'll bet that's very helpful to a lot of people. What about uh, when you get older, do you have less, with the passing of time, do you have less anxiety or less depression, or it just depends upon the person? It would depend upon the person. Definitely uh, depression can go throughout the lifespan, you know, from children to adults. Uh, there's really no age limit or age range that uh, can't be affected. Um, some people just get more coping skills as they get older and learn how to deal with it, uh, using medications. And sometimes if it's situational, you're depressed because a family member passed away or you're depressed because uh, you're in a job that's not a good fit for you. If something changes with what we call situational depression, then you can usually get over it and not need the medications. But for many people, it's just how their brain chemicals are working. And sometimes they don't produce enough of the serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine, sometimes their body breaks it down uh, too fast. So like I tell my patients, you wouldn't think any less of a diabetic for needing insulin. Why do you think any less of someone who's depressed for needing a little replacement of their serotonin or their dopamine? So their body, their brain just doesn't make enough for their needs, just like a diabetic's pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin for their needs. So it's really unfortunate that there's such a stigma over mental health that really doesn't need to be there. Uh, I think the stigma is because we just don't understand the brain as much as we do the pancreas. And you can you know, dissect it and take it apart and look at it. Um, but a lot of times we think depression is some you know, moral failing or you just have to suck it up and be tougher. And, and it really isn't. Um, I tell my patients, you know, consider a bathtub full of water and you need a certain level to enjoy and have a nice hot bath. Well, if you have the drain open, you're going to end up in a very cold bathtub very quickly. So sometimes what we need to do is turn on the tap and get that water coming in faster than it's draining out. So that's where the medications help. And if we find some way with counseling or a change in situation to close that drain, then we may not need the medications anymore. Very so. interesting. Good way of looking at it. And it is true, though. Our society is getting a little bit better, I think, dealing with uh, mental illness or with depression. But it still can be carry a stigma, can it? No matter how hard you try to overcome that idea, you just think, you know, just toughen up whatever but not a good idea and what you've had to say has been very helpful I'm sure to people who are listening and may be facing any type of depression I think it'd be very helpful to realize there really are answers you don't have to sit and worry 
get in to see your doctor or get in to see Dr. Cruz. We're going to take our next break. We'll be back right after these words. Hey, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I think Joni Holm was right in tune with us with her commercial break telling us about dealing with depression as uh, Dr. Cruz just did. If you're new to the program in the past few minutes, I'd like you to know that I'm Joan Hogan and with me in the studio is Jill Cruz, who is a family medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Dr. Holm is sailing the briny deep. And we've been talking about seasonal affective disorder or disease. I don't know if it's a disorder or disease. How do they call it? A disorder. Okay. Disorder. Okay. It's not really something you catch. It's a disorder. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, we had, uh, you mentioned when you were talking about a diabetes, and we had a question with the person who has diabetes and had a few questions for you about diabetes. This woman would like to know, what do you think is the role of emotions and stress in the management of blood sugar in type 1 diabetics? And also kind of tied to that, she'd like to know, do you address this or ask about it when discussing her A1C? I have no idea what A1C is. You'll have to fill us in on that. All right. Well, I'll start off. Uh, a hemoglobin A1C is a blood test that kind of gives us a rolling average of what the blood sugars have been for the last three months. Uh, a glucose molecule will attach itself to a hemoglobin molecule, so your red blood cells. And red blood cells live for about 90 days. So every 90 days, you have a new batch that's coming in, and you know old ones are dying, new ones are coming in. So it's a rolling average. And when we look at the blood, we can see how many have sugar molecules attached to it, and that will correspond with the uh, average blood sugar level. So that's what the hemoglobin A1C is. With uh, diabetes, uh, definitely stress and um, anxiety or even physical stress, being ill, can all cause blood sugars to rise. And that's related to the uh, hormone cortisol. That's the stress hormone that the body releases when it's stressed. We know that um, uh, cortisol is a type of steroid. And when we give patients uh, steroids like prednisone, that raises their blood sugar. So it would make sense that stress would cause uh, blood sugars to be elevated. Uh, as far as addressing that with patients, I don't know if I specifically have asked that question, but uh, she does bring up a very uh, good point, and I think that would be a wonderful thing to address and to be mindful of. And you know, sometimes we don't always think to ask all the questions. We've got our uh, checklist of things we need to get through, so please don't be afraid to bring up your concerns or say, hey, have you thought about this, doctor? I have a, a question. So we love it when patients uh, come prepared and uh, when you keep us on our toes. Well, good. Well, I'm sure that's very helpful for the woman with diabetes. And uh, I'd never heard of that A1C before, but it's a test that you do for yep. the blood, for the sugar level in the blood, right? Exactly. So, you know, a lot of times we'll get a fasting blood sugar, but that will only tell us what that blood sugar is that day at that time. So you can be really good the day before you come in for your uh, readings, but you can't cheat your hemoglobin A1C. Okay, very good. See, I also thought that uh, type 1 diabetic, it just occurred when you're young. But when I saw this question, I, I realized maybe any age you can develop type 1 diabetic? It's more common to develop when you're younger, but yes, it can develop at any age. And type 2 diabetics, as they get older, can kind of transition into a type 1. Type 1 diabetes is when your pancreas does not make enough insulin. 
Um, Another two, name for it is juvenile? Juvenile. Okay, yep. that's type 1. So, okay. But the type 2, your body can't use the insulin that it makes well. So oh. um, you need insulin to help get sugar into the cells. So it's kind of the key that opens the lock. Well, when you have type 2, the uh, key's a little rusty and, and doesn't attach to the lock as well and doesn't open up to get the blood sugar into the cells. Hmm. So that's kind of okay. the difference. One, you don't have uh, enough keys, and the other one, your keys don't work very well. And sometimes they tie in type 2 with uh, overweight. Is that fair or not true? Or? It's very common. Uh, that is one of the risk factors for developing type 2 diabetes is being overweight. Yes. Okay. All right. It's not the only answer, but it's one of the risk factors. Well, that's a good discussion on diabetes. If any, you have any other questions about diabetes, give us a call, 692-1430. We did have someone who would like to know about ringing in the ears. Is there anything you can do to lessen ringing in the ears? Well, there are some things I would say definitely talking to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Um, you know, we have Dr. Reitz at our clinic here, and he does a great job with working with patients with tinnitus, which is the medical term for ringing in the ears. It can be very uh, distracting and very disturbing for people. And you want to make sure that it's not related to other hearing loss. So having a full uh, audiometry or hearing test to see is there other hearing issues going on, having a good exam of the ears to see what's going on. Uh, with ringing in the ears, there are some medications that can be used to help with that, uh, but definitely talking with your doctor to see what's appropriate. And for some people who medications aren't appropriate for or don't work, they can make uh, special hearing aids that are kind of like noise-canceling headphones. So they figure out what pitch your ringing is, and then they use the hearing aid to cancel out that tone. So That's interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, they can. Uh, my husband is wearing hearing aids because I nagged him for 10 years. But finally, <laughs> he did get hearing aids, and it has made such a difference. It isn't the ringing in the ears. He simply wasn't hearing. But I can't believe how improved they are. I think a lot of people avoid hearing aids because maybe they got them 20 years ago. They weren't as good as they are now. I can't believe how they can just, and this doctor will adjust it continuously too. Maybe every couple months he'll go in and get an adjustment in the hearing aid. I can't believe how much better they are and, and he's relieved because he can't hear again. Yes, you know. and they only work when you use them. Uh, my mother jokes that my father has the best hearing pockets in the world because that's where they're his hearing in his pockets, sit. right. Well, that's if they're not good and they're not adjusted well, I think, you know, people get turned off by them, but you get mm -hmm. someone really good with hearing aids and you're going to be happy. They're very good. Yes. Um, when you were talking about... Uh, ringing in the ears we had another person call about something i've never heard of it misophonia it's oversensitivity to sounds it runs in her family what do you know about it i oh, yeah, that's a new one to me are yes. you familiar with that a little i'm yeah. not ne definitely the expert that uh, ear nose and throat doctor would be but uh, definitely that oversensitivity to sounds can be related to um, how the bones are sitting on the eardrum so if they're um, moving too rapidly, things can be really sensitive to it. So if it runs in the family, I would say it's probably related to some genetic uh, component of how the eardrums and the bones in the ears that help uh, regulate how the eardrum moves and transmit sound are. Um, definitely with that, you know, the best thing is either turning down the volume or finding earplugs if you're going to be in an area with uh, loud noise. Yeah. Huh. Well, again, you'd see an ear specialist for exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, 
she probably was just curious to know what you knew about her. If anything new coming along, you never know. Well, we're due to take our next break, our final break, and we'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Uh, Bob in the studio did ask Dr. Cruz a question during the break, and maybe we can throw that out. He wanted to know if there's such a thing as having both type 1 and type 2 diabetes at the same time. So actually you can. There's people that have features of both uh, what we call insulin resistance that you have with the type 2 diabetes and decreased insulin production, which you have with type 1 diabetes. And we give it the fancy name type 1 and a half. <laughs> so you could have both. So you can have both. Yeah. So those people uh, usually need I oral wouldn't feel real lucky having both. No. I wouldn't feel like I won the prize or anything. No. But it but does happen. Huh? Yep. Those people need usually a little bit of insulin and a little bit of oral medications to help everything wow. work well. It's amazing when you think of how our bodies do work, that they work at all. <laughs> With all the things that couldn't go wrong, mm-hmm. and here we are, up and about. Um, you know, I had a question I was going to bring up because I saw this, you know, how you get things on the web, and you shouldn't pay attention to everything, but this was kind of interesting. There's some connection with thyroid. There seems to be an increase in thyroid problems or thyroid cancer. And this one person on the web said, did it occur to you when you have um, an x-ray, do they ever put a thyroid cuff around your neck or a neck cuff? They don't, but they have them. And so this guy went in for an x-ray for his, for, to the dentist and said, do you have something for my neck? Oh, yeah, we have that around someplace. And dragged it out of a drawer and put it around his neck. And he said, the people just don't use them. And that's, you know, anyone giving x-rays, mammogram for women or the dental x-rays, they don't cover your neck. Do you think there's anything to that? Um, <laughs> I would wonder how many x-rays you're getting a year. If it's just a dental x-rays, that would be minimal. But definitely the uh, physicians and nurses who work in cath labs where they're around radiation all the time do wear the, the neck covers and shields as well as the full body okay. uh, shields. So, you know, the people yeah. that are around it all the time know it's important. So They wear it, but they don't it, really put it on the patients. Eh? It, yeah. yeah. So it won't hurt to ask. Well, you can ask for the neck when you, the next time you get an x-ray yeah. to avoid any thyroid problems, you can ask them for a, you know, they cover you with that big, mm-hmm. what is the it apron. called? The a apron. apron. Right, a lead apron. Well, there's a lead neck, neck cuff, shield. so yep. use it. It'd be good. Okay, you know, um, tomorrow night... Dr. Holmes' program will be on Indian Health, and I know they pre-recorded it when they were out in Rapid City a month ago or so. Um, I think it's going to be interesting. Do you know much about Indian Health? Well, actually, when I was in residency, I was able to spend a month with uh, an Indian Health Clinic in Chinle, Arizona, so I was on the Navajo Reservation. So a different tribe than the Sioux that we're used to up here, but it was a very interesting experience, and I actually, during that time, got to spend a day with the medicine man and learn about how they worked with um, combining both uh, traditional Western medicine with their native customs and their traditions. So it was very interesting to see how they used both to help with their health. And when I was there, I also got to go on lots of um, home visits with the public health nurse and see uh, the living conditions that uh, these people are in in a very rural area. I mean, uh, they made our gravel roads look beautiful. I mean, those were dirt ruts that when it rained, they were literally impassable. Oh, my goodness. So it was a very interesting experience, and just to learn about the people and the culture and some of the challenges that they face um, with 
the higher risk of diabetes. Uh, a lot of the kids had problems with dental issues. And again, just uh, getting into a doctor. And some people would drive 100 miles just to get to the doctor. So it was a very, uh, what we would call remote experience. Uh, but it was a neat opportunity because all the doctors lived on a compound at the hospital. And it was o its own little city uh, that was there. And then uh, working with the population and most of the nurses were uh, Native Americans. Most of the doctors were with the uh, Public Health Service Corps and uh, just learning about that group was fascinating and wonderful. Well it's great that when you mentioned most of the uh, nurses were uh, Native American, it'd be nice if we had more Native American doctors too yes. to, to be able to be of help. Definitely. In my uh, residency, it was in Baraboo, Wisconsin, and that's also where the Ho-Chunk Nation is. And two of the doctors there um, at their, what they call the House of Wellness was the name of their clinic, uh, were actually Native. One was from South Dakota, uh, Dr. Debray, and then his wife, uh, Dr. DeLong, was uh, a Native uh, from of the Ho-Chunk tribes. So they were very active of trying to get other uh, natives uh, to go to med school and to encourage them that this is a possibility and something that they can reach for. Well, a lot of times they don't, uh, you just don't realize that you could become a doctor. You know, you can live in a situation where, uh, a situation of poverty quite often with the Native Americans and it's just something you would never achieve or even think to try to achieve. So it's mm -hmm. wonderful that there are some Native Americans that have become physicians in their they're pushing others to join the, the group. But, well, tomorrow night, as I mentioned, it will be uh, all on Native American health and what's happening here in South Dakota. And I know uh, Dr. Holm interviewed uh, a few people from West River who do work in Indian health. So I think it's going to be a fascinating program. I hope all of you will keep tuned for that. We are pretty short on time. Is there anything you'd like to add to the program or anything you'd like to add health-wise for people? Well, another way to help with seasonal affective is to get outside. So a little bit of exercise and uh, actual sunlight can't beat that. So whenever it's a nice sunny day, definitely get out there. Bundle up, but uh, those extra sun, actual sun rays are better than the artificial kind. So okay. enjoy. Well, thank you so much. We hope all of you have enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. As always, you can hear more from Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org where you may also learn about the exciting activities of the Healing Words Foundation. Thanks so much to Dr. Jill Cruz for joining me today. Thanks to all of you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. I'll close with Dr. Holmes' weekly reminder, stay healthy out there, people.